You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Arthi Shahani, a longtime NPR journalist based in Silicon Valley. Today, I'm pleased to be in conversation with a friend and mentor, Guy Raz. Guy is co-creator of the NPR podcast, TED Radio Hour, and the creator and host of How I Built This, as well as Wow in the World. Together, his podcasts attract more than 19 million downloads a month. He is here to discuss his new book, How I Built This, The Unexpected Paths to Success from the World's Most Inspiring Entrepreneurs. If you'd like to ask Guy a question, please ask it in the chat if you're watching on YouTube or in the comments if you're watching on Facebook. Let's get started. Thank you for joining me this evening, Guy. Thank you for for doing this. It's so it's so great to see you. I, I mean, we're we're just a few miles apart uh, in the East Bay, and here we are talking. From, <laughs> from I should have you over to my yard to do this. <laughs> and hello, everyone, and thank you for for joining us virtually. I if I could see all of you, and it wasn't COVID, I'd give you hugs and kisses, and uh, especially you, Arthi. <laughs> Well, I, I will say that you look fantastic. You look remarkably well-rested for someone who has been undeniably incredibly busy. So uh, it's either great lighting or great skin, just as it is. So, <laughs> um, so Guy, I, you, know, you asked me to do this, and I just I had so much fun preparing, just so much fun reading your book, which I thought was lucid, and I learned so much going through it, and we'll get more into, into what I learned, I want to ask more about those parts. But I want to just start with a bit of the personal, okay? So we first met in 2011. I was brand new to NPR, uh, and my first assignment was to be one of your producers, okay? You were the host of Weekend All Things Considered, and in my mind, you were totally living the dream, okay? You're this celebrated beat reporter, award-winning, he's a war correspondent, he ran a bureau in Germany, he gets paid to smart to have smart conversations with very, very smart people, and I'm like, I want his life, okay? And then I come to learn, as you explain in your book, How I Built This, that actually you were not living your dream and in some ways you felt stuck. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting how, how perceptions, you know, we have different perceptions of people. Um, and, 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 and you're right, I mean, we've known each other since then and, and you came to work with me and I learned so much about your life reading your book mm. um, last year, which is just an incredible story and felt like I really... Um, learned so much about you and, 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 and couldn't believe I didn't know it. Mm. You know, I, um, I became the host of that show after, um, you know, really trying to kind of get struggle to, to do that. I was a, a foreign correspondent and a, and a domestic correspondent for NPR and then for CNN for some time. And I really wanted to be the host of a show. That was my dream. And around 2007, um, I, I, you know, I sort of put my hat in the ring to be a guest host for one of the news magazines on NPR. 
Mm-hmm. And um, at the time, the group of executives who kind of decided who was going to be able to host shows um, said to me that I wasn't, I didn't have the right personality for it. Because at the time <laughs> I was, um, I covered wars, I covered the military. And, serious and, beat reporter. And so what they said to me was, you know, you really, you're like a war reporter, you're, you're a military guy, you don't really have the personality to be the host of a news magazine. You need to be more like, I won't say names, like this person or that person. Mm-hmm. And it really, it really was a very hard thing to hear at the time, not only because it felt like an insurmountable obstacle, but also because it was a realization that, and I think so many people have experienced this. I, I know you've experienced this, Arthi, and everybody watching, which is when you work in an environment and you are there for some time, people develop what seems to be these unchanging perceptions of who you are and what you can do. Mm-hmm. You are essentially pigeonholed as a certain type of person. Mm-hmm. And part of that is just human nature. We, we you know, because we're, in, in a sense, we're kind of, our brains are lazy sometimes. And we just kind of say, oh, there's, you know, there's, there's Joe, Joe does this, or there's Bill and Bill, does, there's Guy and he does that. And it really took me, um, I mean, a number of things happened for me to be able to become the host of, of, of the weekend show, mm-hmm. namely the, some of these executives left NPR at the time. <laughs> so that obstacle went away, but also I, I left to do a fellowship. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah. that year was transformational for me. So in 2009, I had the chance to actually become the host of the show. And, you know, really it's, it's crazy, but my dream was to be the main news anchor. I mean, I, I had always yeah. thought, because I, I came to NPR in the late 90s. And yeah. for me, you know, and my parents didn't know what it was. They thought it was a radio station. I didn't grow up listening to NPR. I wasn't like, that wasn't my family. Uh-huh. Um, but once they kind of heard me on the radio, um, you know, every, and I think you probably experienced a version of this too. My right. parents are immigrants too. And so they would say, yeah. okay, yeah, so you're, when are you going to be the main anchor? When are you going to uh-huh. be on TV? <laughs> You know, and, uh, and, and this is, by the way, across the board. I mean, I just, I just had Sal Khan on, on how I built this and similar kinds of things. Like his, his, his mom was like, when are you going to be, you know, that, that kid that is a, he's a PhD MD. Well, what what are you doing? And um, so I, I think in my mind, I thought, you look at what I need to do is to be the main anchor of a news, news show on NPR. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that wasn't in the cards for me. I wasn't part of the grand plan. Um, and it, it became pretty clear to me right around the time that you, you joined us that even though I was kind of guest hosting these other, the main shows, um, I wasn't going to be picked for those jobs. And, um, and, and it kind of came down to a moment where I was told that straight mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. And that was so hard for me because I, mm-hmm. I felt like I couldn't progress that, that there was like no, they sat you down and told you stop trying. Well, no, nobody's ever going to say that to you, but it was like, you know, what, what I was told in, in no uncertain terms is like, you just don't have, you know, you don't have what we want to be mm. the main anchor of the main shows. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that really it was a very hard moment for me because I thought, well, I've, 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 I've done everything right and I'm, I've, I'm trying. And I, you remember, I, I was so committed to this show, this weekend, this little weekend show to make it really great. Mm-hmm. And it felt like I kind of hit a wall. And mm-hmm. at, around that time, I really began to think about, this is about 10 years ago, what should I do with my life? You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm in my 
You're about how old then? You know, mid thirties. And I'm thinking I got to do something else. Yeah. But what essentially happened Uh and, and what's so important about that moment for me is that that failure, let's call it a failure, uh-huh. really forced me to kind of think about what I wanted to do and how to kind of, as much as I could, take control over my career. Mm-hmm. And that really was the beginning of a pivot in my career that moved me out of the news news world and into what essentially became the podcasting world. No, it, it is really fascinating from, you know, how a person looks when they're on that journey from the outside um, and then, you know, what you were experiencing was you've been told you hit a ceiling and there's no up to go. So now what? Um, you know, guy, I've, again, from the outside, I've always thought of you as a remarkably disciplined, creative and ambitious person. Like you've got that drive of like, you feel to me like someone who would not take no for an answer. Um, and so it even kind of surprises me that someone telling you you're not going to get what you set out for could have really touched you deeply in a way that, you know, it's clearly, you know, sort of driven and directed you in certain ways. But, you know, I was trying to figure out guy how to, um, it's like, what makes him so driven and ambitious? And um, you want to know what I did to kind of explore that question in addition to reading your book? Please. You want to guess? I don't know. I got a hold of your wife, okay? Uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> Hannah Stott Bumstead. Here's what she said. I think when I thought about entrepreneurs, what I was really, what I saw was uh, people who were interested in in financial success, and what I didn't see uh, until I think I saw it in Guy was that entrepreneurs are people who are really interested in having the freedom to pursue their own vision. And for Guy, I think that has always been incredibly important. So first of all, she's lovely. Uh, (laughs) And what is the vision that she's referring to? What's the vision you wanted to pursue? Yeah, I mean, it's so funny because I think outwardly, I probably um, have appeared to be ambitious and driven and all those things. And, and, and of course I, I, I am, I've always, my single pursuit in, in my career has been about having an interesting career. To me, that was always the measure of success. I never, you know, I, I genuinely never thought money or, um, or fame or notoriety or external, you know, gratification was, was the mark of success. I really thought it was an interesting life. And that's what I pursued. I mean, I started out as a reporter and then I was overseas for seven years and I got to travel and report from 50 countries and cover three wars and conflicts. And, and, you know, and and for me, it was like, that was the progression, you know, that I wanted to do things that challenged me and that excited me and that, um, energized me, you know, and, and I think like a lot of people, um, I, 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 I always kind of need new, a new kind of stimulation, you know, and, and, and in some ways, everything I've done has kind of happened in, in like three to five year cycles. So like, you know, I, 
how I built this was started four years ago, and um, and it was started in the midst of another program that I used to host, Head Radio Hour, and you know, and 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 I'm sure that there will be something else that that comes along. But I, for I'll continue to do how I built this. <laughs> have these conversations, but yeah. <laughs> um, but I I think that you know for me it's it's always been about having as much agency in my own life. And by the way, Arthi, this is the, this is the advice I give to everybody who works with me. I don't just in, and as, as you know, I don't work for NPR, I work with NPR as a partner, but I've always told people whether they worked with me on, on the shows that I worked with uh, that I did for the news side or whether they worked with me on Ted radio hour, or even how I built this. I'm extremely lucky to work with highly talented and gifted people and I've always said to them, I want you to know that you need to, you know, make your own path. Mm-hmm. And yeah. if at some point, you when told you that to me, point, yeah. when you want to no longer work with me, mm-hmm. come talk to me and let's start to design the next step. Because mm-hmm. I don't, your life is not about making me sound good on the air or helping me. Your life is making you have an interesting life. And I remember thinking that, you know, 25 years ago when I was an intern and a producer, mm-hmm. when I worked with, you know, for some of the really great radio stars of the time thinking, oh, this is really fun, but I don't want to devote my life to, to there. I want to make my own things. Right. And I want to, right. you know, and that, that's also what's motivated me. And that's what I, I'm inspired to say to other people, you know, that, that to me is, is an interesting life. Mm-hmm. That's remarkable, I think, Guy, to not only know what you want, which actually a lot of people don't see it as clearly as, as you have, uh, but then also to assume that other people have desires similar to yours, even when they're working for you. Because I mean, as you know, from your countless interviews, building something is so hard, you might want to hold on as tightly as possible to the people who are there kind of as crutches, you know? So. Yeah, and it's really hard. I mean, he, here's what I would say. I don't think that um, I, I don't think everybody has to pursue an idea or a business. I, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that I think everybody can pursue their own path if they want to. That mm-hmm. the idea of creating something, whether it's a business or putting putting out a disruptive idea into the world or if you work for a company and you want to change the way things happen what what prevents most of us from doing that is fear and it's the fear of rejection because we are wired to want and seek validation like if if i come to you and i say arthi i have this awesome idea really what i want to hear from you is i love it go for it <laughs> now there's some of that spirit here in the in in the Bay Area, sometimes too much of that spirit. Mm-hmm. But most of my career, I lived on the East Coast, where it's the exact opposite. The answer mm. is no, that's impossible, can't be done. Forget it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So the default answer, and, and that's sort of what I I experienced for a long time. Which, by the way, was one of the reasons why I moved to the West Coast because I was mm-hmm. so attracted to the optimism and the yes, yes and kind of yeah. outlook. But what really what I'm what I'm what I'm trying to kind of convey is that this idea that only some people are like touched by the hand of the gods, mm. you know, and can introduce big ideas or can create companies or 
you know, can make things or is, is just not true. That I actually have come to realize from interviewing, you know, hundreds of them mm-hmm. that the, the, the capabilities they have and the capacities they have are all really developed s- skills. And, mm-hmm. and s- in some cases, in many cases, they didn't set out to be entrepreneurs. They didn't set out to create something. It kind of happened by accident. Mm-hmm. It kind of happened to them. And they had to be pushed to pursue it. And I'm inspired by that idea because I think we, not only, um, you know, we in the United States, but we particularly in this part of the country, we fetishize entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. You know, we we over, we kind of heroize them. And that's yeah. what, I've, what I've tried to do is the exact opposite to say, look, they're not heroes. They're, they're, there, there were times in their lives where nobody would pick up their call. Nobody would answer the phone when Howard Schultz called because he was right. just selling coffee filters. Mm-hmm. Nobody was interested in talking to Sarah Blakely before, mm-hmm. you know, when she was trying to develop undergarments. Right. And we all, we all start at that moment. And so what I'm really trying to say is that, you know, what, what makes all of these people remarkable and what makes the idea of introducing something into the world remarkable is the unremarkable aspect mm-hmm. to it, that it's actually within reach. And it doesn't have to be right. you know, a, a rocket to the moon. It can mm-hmm. be something that changes someone's life right. in a small way, but is still significant. And that's really what, what I think kind of, you know, it, it kind of inspired me and motivated me and continues to motivate me. Mm-hmm. You know, Guy, and I, I feel from your work, something you've done is demystify entrepreneurship, right? So it's like, we all know, you know, like on an Instagram or a Twitter feed, who looks big and impressive, but the backstory of the very unsexy work to get there is actually fascinating and you relay it. A couple of minutes ago, you used a word though, I just wanted you to drill into for a moment. You talked about fear and how fear gets in people's ways. And in your book, you made this incredibly important distinction that really had me thinking about my own life as well. You talked about the difference between things that are dangerous versus scary. Can you explain what you meant by that? Maybe even vis-a-vis your own experiences. Yeah. I mean, so this comes from, this really was inspired by Jim Cook, who founded Boston Beer Company. Mm -hmm. And at the time, he was a successful consultant for Boston Consulting Group on the fast track to partnership. He was earning a lot of money. He had a family and two kids, and um, but he was really unsatisfied with what he was doing in life. Mm. And he and he would dream of building something. And and the craziest dream he had was a, a craft beer company. Now it doesn't sound crazy today, but but in the early '80s it was. I mean, there were very few craft beer companies. There was Anchor Steam here in Anchor here in um in the Bay Area. Sierra Nevada was just kind of starting out, but it wasn't well known. Um, you know, at the time, American beer was a joke, and he he started to pursue this idea on nights and weekends. He kept his day job, but he pursued it on nights and weekends until he realized that he really had to make the leap. Mm-hmm. And, and the question he asked himself was, what's dangerous and what's scary? It's really scary to leave a safe, comfortable job with benefits and all of those things. It's scary because you're, you're, you're going into the unknown. Mm-hmm. But the question is, if you stay doing this job that 
you're not happy with, that mm -hmm. you're not, that isn't fulfilling, where you don't feel like you're growing, is that dangerous? And that's, that's the question he asked himself. And I think it's a really important question to ask because mm -hmm. the danger there is that you, you, you don't pursue this thing that is burning inside of you. It's not to say that you, you jump out of an airplane without a parachute. Right. You know, because most of the people who've been on the show who have had to kind of make that calculation, is this dangerous or scary? Mm -hmm. They they still have a backup plan. And Jim Cook did too. He he knew that he could always go back to consulting. He could right. always go back to some other profession or, you know, if if, if he wanted to. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's a really important moment that a lot of us, you know, will confront at some point. And it, it's not always about, you know, leaving a, a a job to start a business. It may be about leaving a job to start another job. It may be about, you know, doing something right. that w with an element of risk. In your own case, you know, when you went from, so you're hosting this weekend show, it's on the radio, this thing that we know, and then you decide that to pursue your voice and an interesting life and another set of experiences, you're going to go into this thing called podcasting. I mean, like, what is that, <laughs> right? When you did it, that's kind of like, what is that? Did it, did you kind of have in your own mind, like a backup plan? Like, okay, I'm going to have this foray. And if it doesn't work, at least I'll be able to do this. Like, how did you sort of have peace of mind doing that? My backup plan was I was married and, and I'm still married to the same person. And my wife had a job, has a job. And so I was like, my backup plan is if it all fails, at least she has a job. So okay. we can live off her income for a while. Uh -huh. I mean, here, here's the thing. It's, it's a strange thing, but, you know, in 2009, I had my first, we had our first kid. We've got two kids. And something about that experience for me was very powerful when it came to my ambitions. In, mm -hmm. in every way, my ambitions to get to the next level or do the next thing, they ended. And it wasn't that I lacked ambition or lacked a, a burning desire to try to do interesting things. Mm -hmm. It was that my focus really was about this human. And it's strange because that was so liberating for me. It was such a liberating moment for me to say, I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to be worried about my career, my prestige. And that had a huge impact on my decision to leave the radio with, you know, I was, I, I had a radio show on, on 800 stations with millions of listeners to go into this thing called podcasting. I did this in 2012 when no one really listened to podcasts. And I, you know, I knew that I wanted to do something different and, and totally radically different from what I had been doing. And I wanted to be able to break the rules mm -hmm. that I felt I was under in the news side of, of things. And that was the opportunity to collaborate with Ted and mm -hmm. to make this show about TED Talks, the TED Radio Hour. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to make a show about the human experience, you know, grief, joy, imagination, curiosity. Um, collaboration and yeah. and talk about it in this like multidisciplinary way mm -hmm. and I really I I just I can't explain what it was but I didn't care if it was going to be successful or not I, I of course I wanted it to be yeah. but I just yeah. I was so focused on just the joy of making something that I that was breaking all the rules and that was yeah. you know I was outside of the news world that mm -hmm. I just didn't care it didn't the, the success of the show, it, of course, we got lucky and it became successful, but it didn't 
genuinely matter. And I think just the the pursuit of the mission of making something that I loved and I thought our, somebody would love mm-hmm. was enough. It was enough to get me out of bed in the morning. And and I think that's why in some ways, um, I don't know. I just, I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of it. You know, I wasn't mm-hmm. afraid of the leap because mm-hmm. it, I, I was motivated just by the joy of doing this thing. It seemed to be a much more powerful motivator. Mm-hmm. That's so like, what you're saying, frankly, to me, it's kind of counterintuitive because you think when someone becomes a parent, then like the feeling of, oh my God, I got to survive is even stronger. But you're describing this process of like just your creativity being unlocked because the center of your life changed. And like, that makes sense to me. It's interesting. It, it really was for me very liberating because I didn't, I stopped worrying so much about what other people thought of me or what, or, 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 or pleasing my parents or, 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 you know, whatever it was, you know, um, cause it, you know, it, it, those things are real. Those things are very real. It, it, it was a, a liberating moment, which helped me to, to feel more comfortable and confident to take smaller and then bigger risks over time. Um, and, and this is, this is really an important point because I, in some ways, you know, I'm an avatar for our audience, right? I am, I, I interview people, um, for the book and for the show, and I'm trying to channel their questions, and but I'm also trying to channel their experience because mm-hmm. I, you know, I identify with them. Right. I think of myself as a person listening and saying, "God, but how am I going to do that? You know, how yeah. am I going right. to how am I going to start Stacy's Pita Chips? Not, I'm just throwing an idea yeah. out there. How am I? Uh-huh. And and what I'm trying to do on the show is to say, um, it. It takes practice. Mm-hmm. All of this takes practice. It's about exposing yourself to rejection and and even small failures and 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 setbacks. Mm-hmm. And each time you're going to get better at dealing with it when it happens again. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it's a practice. It's like any other practice. And those, you know, those experiences that I had those challenges and the failures and then the small victories and then, you know, the small risks that led to some cool, you know, results that gave me the confidence to go to the next step. Right. Right. And, you know, there's so much power in that too, guy, you know, when you see your role as being a stand in for your listener, as opposed to like proving how smart you are to your guests, it just opens up a level of conversation and oxygen. Like that's something I've really enjoyed about your work. Something that I think you've done, when I think about like your legacy guy, like what did Guy do like writ large? I think that basically you've popularized the term entrepreneurship, like that word, that term, entrepreneur, entrepreneurship, probably like nobody else in modern America at this point. I don't think that's an overstatement. I think that that is actually what you've done. And I want to talk with you a bit. I want you to talk at me rather a bit about like your cast of characters. Okay. Um, first of all, like who's one of the toughest interviews you had? Like you just, man, you had to work for what you got. <laughs> yeah. I mean, God, um, I've had a bunch of interviews that are really tough, not because the person is, is difficult. It's more because the person is so filled with humility 
that they have a very difficult time talking about themselves. Hmm. Roxanne Quimby of Burt's Bees is a great example. I mean, that's a wonderful episode. I love that episode. I love Roxanne. Mm -hmm. But she was so nervous because she just, she just didn't want to talk about herself. She didn't think that she was interesting enough. I mean, it's amazing, right? It's such a cool story and a cool brand. Um, and that that's happened, you know, time and again, um, where, you know, you actually, you wouldn't know by hearing it because I'm interviewing people for three, sometimes four hours, mm -hmm. um, really trying to trigger memories four hours. Yeah. and, and, you know, really trying to, to get them to recount their journey. Because th the thing is, is that, and it's like any kind of, any kind of pursuit when, when, when it's about something bigger than yourself, when it's not about the pursuit of money or you know fame or glory, but it's about something bigger, mm -hmm. it's easier to fulfill the mission. And I and, and it's kind of how I present it to the guest on the show. My, what I what I say to the guest is, look, I'm asking you to be generous. I'm asking you to come on and just bare your soul, and not because I'm looking for you know uh, s some like viral moment in our interview to put out mm -hmm. on on the internet because I'm not going to do that anyway. Mm -hmm. It's because I want our listeners to know you you know mm -hmm. like like i know you because you wrote this beautiful book arthi you know and you really mm -hmm. you just opened it up you opened yourself up and i want people listening to the show to have that experience i want them not only to identify with the person mm -hmm. but to really understand what they did right and wrong mm -hmm. in order to help themselves because i you know I, i'm I'm making this show in a sense as the, you know, as a way for people to think about their own lives. And it does, they don't have to be entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. It's designed to kind of spark ideas. And really, I know it sounds a little hokey, but I really want this show to be inspiring to people. I want people to walk away from every episode and say, I feel like I'm charged up, like I can take right. on this day. Right. Um, and, and the reason why I come to that is because there's so many reasons to feel despair right now. I don't have to yeah. enumerate them. We all know what they are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're in just such a really difficult moment. Right. And I don't, I'm not one of these people who's like, I'm optimistic. It's great. Everything's wonderful. <laughs> what I are you think, talking about? What pandemic? Yeah. I think it's nonsense, right? I mean, there are many reasons to be distressed, especially if for all of us here in California who've been living with toxic air for the last you know, month. Mm -hmm. What I will say is I'm a big believer in possibility. Mm -hmm. And I, I've come to that over the years through my shows, through the people I get to interview on TED Radio Hour and, and how I built this, by, 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 by being exposed to incredible ideas and also um, you know, incredible moments of, of challenge and, mm -hmm. and triumph and failure and loss and everything in between. I mean, I, I want the people who hear the show whether they're building a company or introducing a new idea into the world or just need some structure to figure out how to, how to shake up their life. Mm -hmm. I want this show to maybe play a small role in, in that process. And, and, and the book, of course, I want, that's what I'm hoping it does because, you know, I know how lonely any mm -hmm. journey can be. It can be extremely lonely and challenging. I've had, really challenging moments in my life. I've dealt with depression. I've been on, mm -hmm. on antidepressants in my life and mm -hmm. I've had incredibly low moments. Mm -hmm. And 
we, when all, all of us, when we're in those places and spaces, mm-hmm. um, we need, we need inspiration. We need those shots in the arm. And so mm-hmm. one of the things that really, I, I really hope this does is, is give people that, that shot. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you're saying it, but I just want to pose it this way. And, and we will uh, shortly get to questions coming from viewers. And so you can please keep those questions coming in as well. Uh, reading as you're talking, they're, they're really good. A lot of people, Guy, feel lost, okay? Um, I don't know what I care about. You know, you hear that all the time. And uh, across the spectrum, you know, like here in Silicon Valley, you'll often encounter people with inordinate access to resources, but I don't know what I'm passionate about or trying to manufacture a passion that does not exist. Or people who are far less privileged where problems are punching you in the face, but it's disorienting and you're not sure what to care about. You know, you spend a lot of time interviewing people who to some extent have figured it out. A lot of people haven't. And so if you're that person who's like, I don't know what I care about, what do you say to that person? I love this question because I'm, I'm so like not a believer in passion. Mm. Passion is, <laughs> it's great if you have a natural passion. You're, you're really lucky. But most of, us, most of us don't have a natural passion. Most of us... Um, Many of us don't ever have real real passions. Maybe we develop them over time. I mean, if you ask me what my passions are, I'm really passionate about being a father. I'm really passionate about cooking. I'm really passionate about, um, you know, about about reading, um, you know, re- reading certain certain books and, and journals. But when it comes to what I do, I'm really passionate about talking to people and pulling the stories out of them. Now. Could I have told you that 20 years ago? This is my passion? No. I mean, it's oh. here's, here's how I did it. And here's how I think a lot of the people on, on the show do it. They follow their curiosity. We are all hardwired to be curious about the world. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if, you, if you need evidence of that, ask a child, a three-year-old, a couple of questions, and then, or a four-year-old, and they'll start asking about the bugs on the ground and the stars in the sky and yeah. how far away is that the sun and can we ever go there? I mean, we're naturally curious, a curious species. It's, it's just part of who we are. Right. And, and over time, it gets beaten out of us. You know, we get our jobs and we go to them and, and, and we, we encounter the real world around us. And then there's bureaucracy in our companies. And you hear a lot of no's and, and, and you got to do this and you can't do it that way. And we lose it. Mm-hmm. But to regain it is actually really easy. And it's just mm-hmm. a matter of opening yourself up to ideas to being to following your curiosity and it might start with something small it might start with a curiosity about something you see you know on social media and it it opens up a different world a rabbit hole I've always loved going down rabbit holes and Uh for me following my curiosity is really what led me to doing a show about entrepreneurs Mm because it's not it, it wasn't an inevitable journey it wasn't like 10 years ago, you know, I, I had an idea in my head 10 years ago, but it wasn't inevitable. And 20 years ago, for sure it wasn't. Packaged as such, right. You know, it, it really came about by being really curious about stories. And, you know, and, and in the case of how I built this, it really came out of my, my interest in, in epic stories like Joseph yeah. Campbell kind of myths, you know, yeah. the the Star Wars and the and the Gilgamesh and, and Harry Potter and just those epics because right. mm-hmm. through those epics I started to connect the dots that 
basically led me to say, hey, wait a minute. The story of Starbucks is a hero's journey or the story of, you know, of I mean, name any product we've had on the show um, right. or, or company. I mean, it's, it's a it's razor blades or, or tight underwear. Exactly. It's- exactly. <laughs> and then there are incredible highs right. and incredible lows and despair and loss and catastrophe and triumph. I mean, that all those things that happen. And so mm-hmm. as I started to connect the dots, I was able to kind of see that there was a way to tell these stories, but through the prism of business. I am not, I didn't go to business school. I don't have that background, but over the years I've developed an incredible passion for it Mm -hmm. um, simply by following my curiosity. And so I think that's, that's really the connection. It's not about what's your passion. It's what's your curiosity curiosity and follow it. That's super concrete. There's an opposite problem I want you to talk about as well for a moment. And you know, a way I'll describe that opposite problem is for people who like, no, they're doing the thing, but then there's imposter syndrome or some version of that term. Um, I thought about this because actually I spoke to another person close to you. This, this whole event was my excuse to talk to your friends. Um, the person I spoke with, I hope you're like a little red or something. Uh, he is, I believe, also a national treasure, Ramtin Arablui. Here's what he had to say. So when I first started at NPR to work with God and how I built this, um, you know, he recruited me basically to come work with him on this show. And I'd never had experience in journalism, um, I w- you know, ever. <laughs> so I felt really inadequate in a lot of ways. I didn't feel like I had the experience or the education level that a lot of other people did. Uh, and I didn't think I was a good writer. But at every single turn, Guy encouraged me. And not like an irrational, like, you know, he's just doing this to be nice. He encouraged me in a way that he made me feel like he could see something in me, Uh before anyone else did. And in one moment, um, he, I remember I was feeling really, really desperate. I was feeling like maybe this isn't for me. This is about like four or five months in. And I remember a guy like unprompted looked at me and said, you know, this is where you belong, man. You, you don't need to go back like out on tour or like sitting in a studio, just like mixing albums. Like this is where you belong. Like Your ideas belong here. Your work belongs here. And you know, I don't even probably think he probably's not gonna remember that. But in that moment, it did so much for me. So that was Rantin Arablui, a uh, host of the spectacular podcast Throughline. Uh, do you remember Guy Raz the moment he was talking about? No, I love him so much. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm. You're gonna make me cry. Um, Rantin is, and, and for anyone who doesn't know Throughline, it's one of the most incredible podcasts out there. Rantin. I met him. Um, he was a DJ, and I met him through a friend. And I just, I just liked. There's something about him I liked right away. And I, and he said, "Hey, if you ever have any work at NPR, let, let me know." I, I've never done radio, but I've, I've mixed music. And like nine months later, I got a little bit of money to um, develop how I built this. Just, just one month, like, like, like five thousand dollars. You know, like nothing. And I called him. I was like, "Look, I'll teach you what I know. C- come, come by for a month." And um, the rest is history. You know, five years later, he now has his own show. Mm-hmm. He's just, he's written, he, he writes all the music for How I Built This. He writes all the music for many other NPR podcasts, including yeah, Through Line. Yeah. He wrote the theme song for How I Built This. I mean, he's just such a talented person. And, you know, it's it's so interesting to hear other people talk about imposter syndrome or, you know, like, I didn't know if I was good enough. And it's 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 so funny because, I used to, and I still try to do this. Um, I, I, I love talking to interns and, and I, I always um, make a point to 
talk to the you know NPR interns or interns anywhere I can. And one of the first questions I ask is like, raise your hand if you feel like you don't belong here, like someone made a mistake. Because I remember that feeling in 1997 <laughs> when I got to NPR and I was like, how do they pick me? Like, I'm not as smart as these other people. Mm-hmm. The crazy thing is, and I've, what I've realized is that that really doesn't go away. You know, I still have a version of that inside of me. Like there's still mm-hmm. something inside of me where like, why do people listen to me? Or why do people listen to my shows? Or, you know, when people say very nice things about me, I'm like, but, you know, I know me and I'm not, I don't think I'm, but, and, and of course, you know, I, I understand and, 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 you know, now in my mid forties have come to believe that, yes, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm pretty good at what I do, but there really, there are days where I don't believe that there really are days where I'm like, no, you know, I, <laughs> you know, and, and it becomes more manageable over time. But I think that, that this idea that, you know, I don't belong or, I'm not good enough to be here is something that is very common. I think a lot of the people who've been on the show feel a version of that too. Right. Um, and I actually think it's healthy. I think it's healthy right. for us to be self-reflective and have some self-doubt. Right. right. Um, and to kind of be a gut check on ourselves. Otherwise, I mean. Keeps you on your toes. Horrible person. <laughs> Self-satisfied. Yeah. Uh, I am going to turn to audience questions soon. I have one more guy. Cause I'm, you know, I mean, there, Listen, there are so many things I could ask about the moment we're in. I mean, choose the moment you're talking about. (laughs) There are so many things going on. But, you know, I decided to pick one of the many moments we're in. um, And that specifically is about the reckoning going on in newsrooms, the media reckoning, the industry that you and I are both part of. A lot of that reckoning is now at least focused on racism and sexism endemic to our workplaces. Um, And as we both know from covering business extensively, crisis is often a great time to reimagine, okay? Never waste a good crisis, they say. So as newsrooms are thinking about who we are, what we do, whom we connect to, who does and doesn't trust us, What's something you'd like newsroom leaders, the leaders of our industry, to consider? Lessons that feel timely to you. Yeah. I mean, gosh, there's so much, you know. I mean, I think, I, I, let, me, let me start with myself because I can, I can answer that question about myself. And I'm not in a news environment, but, you know, I'm, I'm in the media and, and I'm a media figure. And as strange as this may sound, my ultimate goal is to make myself obsolescent. You know, I, I, I don't believe that, that especially people like me um, should be holding on to their jobs and their positions of power, whether they, 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 they understand that or not. Um, they are positions of power forever and ever. It's not, it doesn't actually make sense and it actually results in worse content over time. So there will be a moment, there will be a time where I won't be doing this and somebody else will be doing it or, or will make it better. I mean, one of the reasons why I left Ted radio hour, my other show is in part because of that, you know, I, I, I did it for seven years. Um, I love doing it. It's an incredible show, an amazing experience, but like, does the world need, you know, Guy Raz to have like five shows and to hear, you know what I mean? I, I and I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, I, I, I think that they're, you know, for me, that was one step. Here's what I would say 
in terms oh, yeah. of like the news world and 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 what has to happen and what should happen. And I have a really, I think, a very di- I've always had a very different view of this. One of the challenges that I had when I was in the news side of things and when I was a news reporter was, um, I just, I, I didn't believe in this notion of objectivity because the, the notion of objectivity is determined was determined by a very narrow band of people mm-hmm. who were, you know, who, who decided what it meant to be objective. Yeah in the seventies and eighties and they, they, they look the same and they, and I'm not, I'm not disparaging them. I mean, there's a, there's an argument to be made that news organizations need to be detached and so on and so forth. But, you know, we, we are living in a, a time and a moment where news organizations, um, I, I believe have a responsibility to not call balls and strikes, which is the way they've seen themselves um, traditionally, but to actually weigh in on the great moral questions of the day, even if some people don't like it, and even if people say, well, I don't, you know, who are you as a moral arbiter? I you think there's been a lot of, of fear, you know, um, among, among news managers and within news organizations to be moral arbiters. Hmm. Um, the reality is that news organizations and news people are absorbing a lot of information. They are, taking in accounts of, of things from various angles and various sides. And if they're good at what they do, they're absorbing a lot of different perspectives. And to me, it's, it's, it's never made sense that there's this kind of morally relative stance, this mm-hmm. detached, disassociated stance. I don't think it's good for democracy. I think that there are some news organizations today that have done a better job, especially in light of what we're facing today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with, with, you know, I think, Name them? forces in this country that are really just hacking away at our democracy, which is really, I don't even want to use the word alarming because it's, it's, it's beyond that. It's, it's, um, it's destructive for all of us. It's destructive for them and their supporters. It's, it's going to corrode all of us. Mm-hmm. And I wish that news organizations would take a more, a firmer stand mm-hmm. and be bolder and say, you know what? We have a responsibility to actually uphold and defend democracy and and to do it in a clear way that mm-hmm. you know that 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 isn't you know isn't equivocal but that is actually unequivocal mm-hmm. that's it's it's so interesting guy because that word objectivity i think becomes a way to be blind to your own biases and yeah. so you're actually even less objective <laughs> than you may have been had you not said you were. Um, I'm going to turn now to some of the questions that were yet from the audience. Let's start with this one from Josie. What advice can you give, Guy Raz, uh, to young people starting out in their career in the midst of COVID with no clear idea of what is ahead of us? Yeah, I mean, this is a really challenging moment. I, I think that in some ways, and just bear with me for a moment, it's going to sound strange, but in some ways... This is a time to consider taking a risk that you might not take in an otherwise, you know, a, a, a time when, let's say, you know, there's lots of opportunity for employment. Here's why. Because we are living at a time when it's not really clear whether the quote-unquote safe job that you have is actually going to be safe. You know, the, the, all the things that we've been told about finding and pursuing a safe job 
it may actually become meaningless over the next two, three, four, five years. The, the other thing I would say is that if, if there's a way for you to think about building something on your own, or maybe partnering with somebody to come up with an idea, now to me is one of the most incredible times to do it. Even as strange as this might sound, because we're in an economic crisis and all this craziness is happening around us. But if you look at some of the companies now that are so incredibly resilient, like uh, Microsoft or FedEx or Hewlett Packard, even Airbnb, which it, it, remarkably, I mean, it had 60% drop in its business at the beginning of this year, and now it's back to where it was last year. But they actually built resilience within their brand because all these companies were started in the midst of financial or economic crises. So mm -hmm. Airbnb had the experience of going through 2008 because they started in 2008. It means that in 2020, they knew what to do very quickly to survive and then to stay afloat. And so I think that people who can come up with a business idea now are actually who can think about a problem that you see in the world and, and begin to think about how you can solve that problem. Now is actually an incredible moment to try and start that. I'm not saying if you have a day job, I'm not saying quit your day job, mm -hmm. but I'm saying that now is a moment, especially because we're stuck inside, to really begin to think about what you might be able to do on your own. Mm -hmm. Now is the time to start to research and to think and to ask questions and to observe the, observe the world around you, in, you know, with an idea. Because if you can make it, if you can start something that makes it through this period, this really challenging period, it will, it will hardwire, it will sort of bake into your, whatever it is you build, it will bake resilience into it. And in the future, anybody will be able to throw anything at you and you will most likely be able to withstand it. So that's my advice. That's, you know, I can also give you another piece of advice for people who are just starting out, which is try, try being, try getting a job in sales and marketing. <laughs> Sales builds resilience because you're going to hear a lot of people saying no, and you're going to need to get accustomed to hearing no when you actually go out and start something on your own. That's great. And it sounds like, Guy, that to do that, it takes not being so distracted by your own anxiety about the uncertainty of the moment to then go back to this, you know, what you've described as curiosity, whether it's a side hustle or the main thing you focus on, to know how to listen to that part of yourself. And look, anxiety is a real thing. I mean, it's not, I'm not saying that just suppress your anxiety. I mean, there are ways to control it. And I've learned that over, over the course of my life. And I, you know, like everybody, I still get anxiety. I get, wake up in the middle of the night, freaking out about things, about the world around me. And so there are ways that I manage it. I exercise every day. I meditate every day. Those things are not always easy for everyone to do. But what I would say is that we all, you know, we all need to be reminded of, our, our capabilities and the things we can do and, you know, call it self-help or meditation or mantras or whatever it is. But there's a reason why, you know, it works. There's a reason why people seek out inspiring ideas and stories because we need that. If, if we're exposed only to, to fear and negativity, it, we internalize it, you know, and that's, that's, that, that's not, that makes sense. I mean, that's how all creatures behave. And so we need to kind of remind ourselves that there are other things out there. There's possibility out there. And so, yes, anxiety is real, but we can also, we also have the capacity to manage it 
within reason and i and 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 however you choose to do it um you know you gotta you you gotta you gotta do it you gotta actively work towards it here's a question from jonah uh switching gears the vc community venture capital community is notoriously white white male and they invest in what they know what do you do to seek out diverse stories um, it's such a great question. I mean, we have basically 40, 45 episodes a year, main episodes, and now we do a resilience series. Um, and we have a very simple rule. Um, at least 25% of our, uh, of any interview I do has to be a person of color. And at least 50% of my interviews have to be uh, women. So we're not, um, we're, we're right now, if you look at all of our episodes over the past four years, about 50% of our episodes have been women and or people of color. Um, and we're, that our, that's our North Star, you know, and, and by the way, it's not our North Star because it's like the right thing to do. It's our North Star because, <laughs> because having a, 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 an entrepreneur community of white and Asian men is boring it, it, it the result and and i'm not i'm a white white man i'm not saying that's bad i'm just saying i agree with you <laughs> what i'm saying is it's it's not what we we suffer as consumers right. you know we suffer as um as citizens when we we don't have the opportunity to be exposed to all kinds of incredible ideas and so one of the most important reasons why we seek out entrepreneurs of color and women entrepreneurs is because i I need to, I need people hearing the show who are women and people of color to hear themselves in those stories. So we just did an, an episode on, on Tope Awatana, the founder of Calendly. And I mean, the notes I got from, from black entrepreneurs saying, you know, I just really appreciate hearing his story because the message is sends to me is I can do this too. And, and so that's absolutely critical. Like we, you know, for better or worse, we're a really big show now, and we have millions of listeners a week. And so my, if, if there's one thing I can do to inspire, you know, a 16-year-old or a 25-year-old or whoever listening who's a brown or black or, or you know, a non-white person or even white, I mean, anybody, but to inspire them, to hear themselves in the stories of somebody who is like them, that's just that's huge. I mean, there's, I mean, I can, I can die a happy person. Okay. Here's a question from Tara. I'm going to tweak it just slightly. Um, audio is growing, growing rapidly as a medium for listening to things. How do you compare audio to TV and print? What can you do in audio that you can't in TV or print? You can build an entire world in audio. I mean, you can do it in print too. I mean, obviously novels are, 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 are a great example of that, but there are real limitations with what you can do in audio and print in, in, in video and print versus audio. Let me, let me try to um, illustrate this. Do you remember when you were a kid and, and I don't know how old you are, but if you're my age, you had one telephone in your house and it had a long cord and you had, and, and, and when I remember when I was in fifth grade, I get on the phone or sixth, seventh grade, like middle school. And I'd take that cord and I'd walk around the corner to the closet and I'd close the door, the, the, the coat closet, and I'd have a conversation with a friend on the phone. It was dark and I only heard their voice. 
those were some of the most powerful, meaningful conversations I had in my young life at the time. And the reason why is because our brains are designed to process visual information. Like 70% of our brain is focused on, I'm looking at Arthi now, you're looking at me. We have these amazing computers. So what happens is we don't actually process voice. And the voice has as many interesting dimensions as the face does. You know, we've got thousands of muscles in our face that move and signal and, and, and communicate without communicating. Our voice does too. And to me, it's why audio is so much more intimate and powerful. I remember when I left audio, you know, now 15 years ago, I went to CNN. Mm -hmm. uh, so many people said, Where, where'd you go? Where mm -hmm. are you? You know, and it wasn't that they weren't seeing me on television. It was just that their connection to me was very different. Seeing right. me on television, it's not the same. I'm talking to a huge number of people on TV. I'm also talking to a huge number of people on my podcast. But really, I'm just talking to you because you have my, my voice in your earbuds. Mm -hmm. And so there's a one-to-one -one relationship. Even though it's three and a half million people, I really am delivering the message right to you, right to your, your ears. And that's an intimacy that you just can't replicate with those other mediums. You know, it's also, it's interesting. It's like, as you're explaining this guy, I'm thinking about how, like, listen, I, I've been listening to you this entire talk we've been having. I know that... I would be hearing you more intimately if I were not seeing you like that layer, that visual layer is actually distracting me from connection. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Yeah. yeah I just find that so strange. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. you're right. <laughs> um, you've interviewed so many people. John wants to know who's an interview at the top of your bucket list. Shout out the name and make a wish. All right. <laughs> I really, I mean, we're, we've been very fortunate on the show that, that you know, we've been able to interview pretty much everyone we wanted to. And the reason why is that when we approach people um, who are willing to be on the show but come with conditions, we, we politely decline. And we'll say, hey, we get it. We just can't do that. So, you know, I've had some prominent founders um, approach us, and, but they have conditions. They don't want to talk about this. They don't want to talk about that. And so my, my response to, to them is like, um, you know, um, you, when you're ready to talk to us, um, that's, you know, let's, let's, you know, when you're ready to talk to us about conditions, let's do it that way. Who do we want to be ready to talk to you? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that, I, I, I think that, um, um, you know, one of the things that I, one of the people I've lo loved to talk to would be like Barack Obama. And, and, you know, even though his story has been told and he's got a biography coming out, I'd really love to talk to him about building that campaign of 2008, mm. you know, which I think, um, I think would be just amazing to hear his story. Right. All that infrastructure from the ground and yeah, all the experimentation in it. That makes sense. Um, so one more question we have over here is, have you ever gotten, uh, and this is from Mariana, have you ever gotten um, uh, advice that was a surprise to you? Advice that you found good but surprising? I think. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I've, I've had so much advice that I've gleaned from, from the shows and from the people I've interviewed. I'll tell you one piece of advice that is just very practical, and I, I use it all the time. I interviewed Danny Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner, um, several years ago, um, um, thinking 
Fast and Slow. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the book. And um, I interviewed him, and he had just returned from Geneva at the time. I said, oh, how was your trip to Geneva? And he said, um, he said, we left early. We left three days early. It was great. And I said, oh, why did you leave three days early? And he said, oh, um, when I'm actually enjoying myself, either on vacation or an event, I always leave, right, when I'm feeling great. And I, I was like, what? What are, you, what are you talking about? He says, yeah, when I'm at, if I'm at a dinner party or a party, once I've, I'm like really feeling great, I leave because I know and I've studied how the human brain remembers things. And we remember the last things most intensely. And I don't want to risk having a bad memory of an experience. So when things are going great, I leave. And I've taken that to heart. I love that advice. You're not about to hang up, are you? So. No, no, no. <laughs> I think they call that an Irish exit, or maybe that's not exactly the same. Okay, all right. Yeah, you yeah. don't say goodbye. Right. Exactly, right. right. That, well, that, that, is, that makes so much sense, also, he said, from a neuro neurological perspective. And how has it been, Guy, book touring in COVID? I mean, this is a very different experience you're having. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been interesting. I mean, I've done probably five times the number of interviews that I would have done if I was on the road and touring. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've been very efficient because I can get a lot done. And I, can, and I originally was going to take two weeks off to do this, but now I can still do the show. Um, mm -hmm. So that's an advantage. The disadvantage is I can't meet people. You know, I can't interact with our listeners and audience and, and exchange ideas. Um, so that's been, that's been weird. Um, but I, I, you know, I have to say that, um, you know, we're making the best out of it. And I'm able to have conversations like this with you. I mean, it would be great if we could be in San Francisco right now in front of an audience and then I could hang out after and, 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 and chat longer. But, um, but do you enjoy not having the travel time? Yeah, I think it's, that's been pretty great. I mean, before COVID, I was on an airplane three or four times a week. I lived at SFO. So um, that's been a nice break. But, um, you know, it's hard to say nice when we're in this very challenging moment that, you know, that's, that's been really difficult for so many, so many people. Right. So Guy Raz, host of How I Built This and author of How I Built This, uh, the two. Um, fantastic book. I should mention, Guy, I thought that what you wrote was so lucid and easy to digest and practical. And I, I really did find myself, I mean, I was like reading your book and doing the audiobook, switching in between uh, while hiking on Sunday. And I literally found myself stopping to make a note to myself about something that I'm currently building um, or just sort of correct some things that I had previously written. It just, it, it, was, it was a great amount. I felt like I got to have a conversation with you about my idea. That's what the book did for me. That's, that's why I wrote this book. I wrote this book for exactly that reason, to, mm -hmm. to help you kind of think about ideas and think about how you would build it. Mm -hmm. I think that it, it definitely did that for me. The last question we have, uh, it is actually an informed tradition, Guy Raz, uh, to ask all of our speakers the following question. The question is, what is your 60-second idea to change the world. Cut the military budget in half and allocate it in at least in half, maybe two thirds, and allocate it entirely to climate change, um, to building massive, you know, solar deserts, um, you know, solar panels and deserts all across the country, to building carbon capture 
um, you know, uh, fields in, in, in unused land all over the country and to, to take really aggressive action now and to deploy the technology we have now. It's not perfect, but some of it's good enough. We just don't have time. We've got to do it now and we've got the money to do it if we can begin by taking half of it from the military. Mm, very practical and thought out and interesting. Thank you, Guy Raz. So I want to thank you uh, for joining us at Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, we would like to remind our audience that Guy Raz's book, How I Built This, is now available for purchase at your preferred bookseller. If you'd like to watch virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Arthi Shahani. Thank you so much and stay safe, everyone. Mm -hmm.